Open your Bibles to uh, Colossians chapter 1. Our passage today is Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. Today is part one of a two-part sermon that will take us through a very dense forest. And as you're turning there, I, I just wanted to, uh, before we get started, make you aware that God willing and weather permitting, this Saturday I'll be preaching at a peace rally organized by the Nazarene Narrative which includes a diverse group of pastors across different churches and denominations. We're going to preach Christ, calling people to depart from evil and to do good, to seek peace and pursue it, Psalm 34, 14. So please pray for this rally this Saturday, and if you're able to, you're more than welcome to come join us. It's Saturday, uh, 10 a.m. in Love Park in Center City, Philadelphia. Uh, Bill Davis will be there as well, speaking about Saturate USA. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all the energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle that I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Triune God, thank you for coming and dwelling among us. And Holy Spirit, show us Christ today, how worthy he is, how majestic, how he is worthy of us speaking of his glorious riches, how he is worthy of us suffering for the sake of his name. Give us courage where it is lacking. Give us conviction where we need it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. What's so important to you that you would risk your life? You would risk endangering your life, something so important. In October 2010, a New York Times photographer named... Uh, <coughs> Joao Silva was on patrol with American soldiers in Afghanistan. A group of minesweepers and bomb-sniffing dogs moved several steps ahead of Joao Silva and other soldiers. Silva was embedded in the 4th Infantry Division as American soldiers were clearing Taliban insurgents from southern Afghanistan. As Silva was walking along the dry, dusty area, an explosion rocked the patrol. Shockwaves pierced the desert and threw soldiers to the ground. Silva had stepped on a landmine. The bomb seriously injured both his legs and other parts of his body. Thankfully, medics reached Silva in time, and within seconds, he was airlifted to safety. 
Silva was committed to photographic journalism, telling stories through photography, through pictures. He was so committed, he even risked his own life to take pictures in a war zone. In our passage today, we see Paul so committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ that he risks his own life. But it's a commitment not just for Paul, but for every disciple of Christ. We're going to see today that stewards, that's you and I, who are entrusted with the gospel, stewards suffer and speak to show the greatness, the glorious riches of Christ. Stewards suffer and speak to show the glorious riches of Christ. We see here this morning that Paul is a steward, someone who is entrusted with something so precious, so valuable, that he guards it with his own life. A Secret Service agent is a steward. He is entrusted with guarding the life of the president. And Paul is a steward. He is entrusted with guarding the gospel. And we're called to do the same, to suffer and to speak, to show the glorious riches of Christ. So look with me once again to chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Who says, I rejoice in my sufferings? Our natural instinct is to avoid pain and pursue pleasure. So why does he say that? Let's read on. In my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul rejoices in his suffering because he's accomplishing something, something so important, so vital, so critical, that it brings him great joy. It's like a secret service agent taking a bullet for the president. It might be painful, but it brings him great joy to know that he has done a great heroic deed for the sake of his country. So what's Paul accomplishing? He says, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. And you might be wondering, what is lacking in Christ's affliction? Haven't we spent the last several weeks unpacking the supremacy of Christ? Jesus is the supreme creator. By him, all things were created, verse 16. He is the supreme sustainer. In, all things, in, in him, all things hold together, verse 17. He is the supreme redeemer, the firstborn from the dead, verse 18. The supreme reconciler, verse 22. So if Jesus Christ is supreme, the supreme creator, sustainer, redeemer, reconciler, what's lacking? Is Paul contradicting himself? Is Paul having a Messiah complex? Well, you don't need to wait to the end of my sermon to know that the answer to both those questions is no. Paul isn't contradicting himself, nor is he having a Messiah complex. Without question, Christ's work is complete. Jesus said, it is finished, John 19, 30, as he died on the cross. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Jesus delivered. He transferred. He redeemed. The work is done. Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9, 26. Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 10, 12. 
So his work is done. We can't add to it. We can't take away from it. But we do need to receive it. Receive it. If you're a condemned criminal and a king offers you a pardon, it does no good unless you receive that pardon, that forgiveness, and then to be able to live in the good of it. In the same way, Jesus Christ, the King of this universe, God Almighty, offers you and I a pardon, a pardon that erases our lifetime record of sins. Every sinful thought, selfish thoughts, angry thoughts, lustful thoughts, prideful thoughts, every sinful word, the lies, the gossip, the slander, and every sinful deed, the God who is holy, 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 the God who is of purer eyes than to look at evil, the God who has to punish sin and destroy lawbreakers, this God in love offers you a pardon, forgiveness of your sins, on the basis of what His Son, Jesus, has done. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, came to rescue us from our sins by dying on the cross and then rising three days later. But some of you here, some of you watching on our live stream, have yet to receive Him. You might come to church, you might watch on YouTube, and you go through the motions. Don't wait and find out when it's too late that you should have received Him. Jesus says in John 1, 12 and 13, but to all who did receive Him, received God, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So if you have yet to receive Him, receive Him today. Receive forgiveness of sins and everlasting life today. And all you need to do is, is repent. Give up living your own way and believe. Believe that Christ alone is sufficient and it's all that you need. And do that today because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. So Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings because I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his church. And if Christ's work is complete, how can Paul say, I'm filling up what's lacking? How can he say that? Well, there are two ways we're going to look at how Paul fills up what's lacking. Two ways today. Number one, what's lacking is Christ's afflictions through us. Number one, what's lacking is Christ's afflictions through us. Let's think a moment about Paul's dramatic conversion experience. Paul's on the road to Damascus with letters from the high priest to arrest Christians and bring them to Jerusalem. And on his way to carry out his murderous mission, a bright light shines from heaven, knocks Paul to the ground, and Paul hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul replies, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Isn't that interesting? When a disciple is persecuted, Jesus is also persecuted. When a disciple suffers, Jesus also suffers. And notice what a radical conversion Paul experiences. He goes from afflicting suffering onto Christ to being afflicted in Christ. From causing suffering to sharing in suffering with Christ. So yes, we can say in one sense, the sufferings of Christ are complete. We can't add to His work. And yet, in another sense, we can say the sufferings of Christ, they aren't complete. Christ continues to suffer, to be persecuted through the lives of his people. So when Paul suffers, when Christ suffers, when Paul suffers, Christ suffers. When you suffer, 
Christ suffers. And that was Paul's lived experience. Christ was despised and rejected by men. So was Paul. Christ was afflicted and stricken by God. And so was Paul. Paul bore in his body the marks of Jesus. Christ was flogged with whips and rods. And so was Paul. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 27, Paul says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger, in toil, and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst. Things got so bad for Paul that he even despaired of his own life. He wanted to die. And yet, Paul rejoices that he is counted worthy to suffer for Christ. You see, Jesus isn't physically here on earth anymore. He ascended up into heaven in Acts chapter 1. But his work of suffering is incomplete. It's still lacking. As commentator David Powell says, the defect lies not in the afflictions of Christ, but rather in the afflictions of Christ as they are reflected and reproduced in the life and behavior of Paul, his apostle. So the afflictions aren't lacking, but they're lacking in the respect that they need to be reflected and reproduced in the life of his disciples. So until Jesus comes back, there are afflictions which need to be reflected and reproduced in us as his disciples. That's why Paul would talk about sharing abundantly in Christ's suffering, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, Philippians 3.10. So how about you? How about me? Are we ready to suffer, even to die for Christ and his mission? Jesus warned us ahead of time, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you, John 15, 18. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. For, uh, for 2 Timothy 3, 12. The New Testament over and over again teaches us that following Jesus leads to persecution. But what if we don't experience any of this persecution that Jesus and Paul and the apostles talk about? What if we've managed to fly under the radar, keep our heads down, keep our faith to ourselves? Are we being faithful? If we never pay any cost for following Jesus, is he really that glorious to us? Is he really that precious to us? David Powell writes, we might question our faithfulness if we never suffer for Christ and the gospel in the ways Paul did. Let me say that again. We might question our faithfulness if we never suffer for Christ and the gospel in ways Paul did. In the book of Revelation, Christian martyrs cry out for justice. They cry out to justice before the throne. And this is what we read in Revelation 6:11. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So there's a certain number of martyrs, a certain number 
a certain amount of suffering that has to be complete before Jesus returns. And each death, each affliction that we suffer as disciples brings us closer to Christ's return, filling up what is lacking. Stewards suffer and speak to show the glorious riches of Christ. So number one, what's lacking is Christ's suffering through us. And number two, what's lacking is Christ speaking through us. So number two, what's lacking is Christ speaking through us. Well, in case you hadn't figured out, Jesus hasn't returned yet. This means he still has work for us to do. His mission is lacking. His mission is incomplete. The gospel still needs to be proclaimed. So even though the atoning work of Christ is done, the proclamation of that work and paying the price for doing that proclamation continues and needs to happen. Verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. You see, we have to remember, church, that God has spoken. He has revealed himself to to us through his word, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. And our task as ambassadors, as witnesses for Christ, is to speak what Christ has already spoken. The White House press secretary communicates on behalf of the president across print media, broadcast networks, and the internet. Her job is, to, is not to speak her own ideas, her own plans, her own desires, but the president's. So let's say the president wants to increase taxes, let's say, but she disagrees. Her job isn't to turn around and announce a tax decrease. No, her job is to communicate what the president wants, the president's desires, what the president needs to communicate. And so like Paul, we are stewards. God has entrusted us to be spokespersons. First Corinthians 15.3 says, for I delivered to you, this is Paul saying, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What I also received. The message of the gospel, the good news of salvation found only in Jesus Christ was received by Paul. He didn't make it up. It wasn't his idea. It's not our idea. His job was to deliver what he received and not change the message. And we're called to serve as witnesses, as ambassadors, as spokespersons of what we have seen and heard, what we have experienced, and what we know to be true in Christ. We proclaim that which we have received, what God has spoken. We have as much liberty to make up our message as the press secretary has to make up her own presidential policy. So when was the last time you spoke of your faith in Christ? When was the last time it cost you something to speak of Christ? I confess that as I was studying and reflecting and thinking about my own life, that it's easy for me, I think it's easy for all of us to avoid speaking, to remain silent. And hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we need to now go out there, be obnoxious, be in your face about the gospel. Jesus was bold, but he was never rude. And as I reflected about this, on this passage, I realized it's been years since I've had to pay some kind of price for speaking of Christ. Uh, the one example which came to mind happened over 10 years ago for me when I was working in corporate America. 
When I was working in corporate America, I developed a good working relationship with a, a, a coworker, with a woman who was coordinating a team taught class where I would be teaching one of the sessions. We work well together uh, in person and over email. In one email exchange I had with her, I seemed to be prompted to ask her about her relationship with God, whether she would go to heaven. Uh, one of the easiest ways for me to get into spiritual conversations is to simply ask people, may I ask you an important question? May I ask you a spiritual question? If you died tonight, would you be 100% sure you'd go to heaven? And from there, it's usually pretty straightforward to ask someone why. Why would they say 50% sure or 25% or 100%? And then it opens up opportunities for me to speak of the hope I have in Christ, that I can be 100% sure that my sins are forgiven and I'll go to heaven because Jesus died for me. But this question, and I, I forget because it's been 10 years, I forget how I worded it exactly. This question struck a nerve and she felt deeply offended, and she felt the need not only to report me to human resources, to HR, but to inform me that I had been reported to human resources. Now, I don't blame her. I think if I were deeply offended and I thought some lines had been crossed, I'd probably do the same thing. Well, thankfully, nothing came of it. I never heard from HR. But what I experienced certainly pales to the persecution faced by so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ who face the real threat of losing their jobs, losing their homes, and losing their lives for speaking of Christ. For instance, in the country of Nepal, there are anti-conversion laws which makes it a crime to evangelize, makes it a crime to tell others about Jesus and call people to repentance and faith. And perhaps one day we might even see laws like that in the United States. But stewards speak. We speak to show the glorious riches of Christ. Pastor Stam Storms puts it so well, what's lacking is not propitiation, but presentation. What's lacking is not propitiation, but presentation. Propitiation is God's satisfying divine justice by punishing His Son in our place. Presentation is simply speaking that good news and calling others to respond through repentance and faith. So what's lacking is not propitiation, but presentation. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Paul endures chains as a criminal and suffering to tell others, to tell the elect, those who have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world, who will come to faith in Christ, but Paul has to speak so they can know about Jesus and come to faith in Jesus. As John Piper points out, Christ's work is full and lacking nothing except one thing, a personal presentation by Christ Himself to the nations of the world and the people of your workplace. And let the nations be glad. John Piper retells the story of a missionary who walked barefoot from village to village preaching the gospel in India. His hardships were many. After a long day of many miles and much discouragement, this missionary came to a certain village and tried to preach the gospel. 
but he was driven out of town and rejected. So he went to the edge of his village, exhausted, discouraged, and lay down under a tree simply to sleep because he was just so tired. When he awoke, people were hovering around him, and the whole town was gathered around him to hear him speak. The head man of the village explained that they kept an eye out on him as he left the village. And when they saw his blistered feet, they concluded that he must be a holy man and that they had been evil to reject him. They were sorry and wanted to hear the message that he was willing to suffer so much to bring to them. You see, what was lacking wasn't the work of Christ, but a presentation of that work. What's lacking for our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers isn't the work of Christ, but a presentation of that work. So church, are you, are, am I, are we willing to speak and even to suffer to present that work of Christ, to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow Jesus in evangelism, to pay the price so that you can speak of the one who paid the ultimate price. And church, that was Paul's great ambition in life, to spend and be spent, to pour out his life for his Savior. As I begin to bring things to a close, I want us to look at verses 26 and 27. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Notice in this last couple verses that we're going to end here that Paul uses this word mystery twice, mystery hidden for ages and generations, and the riches of the glory of this mystery. When you think of mystery, you might think of a something that's difficult or impossible to understand, or maybe a novel or a movie where they're trying to solve a difficult crime, and only the smart people can figure it out. But that's not how the Bible uses mystery. In the, in the Bible, this word mystery refers to something that was once hidden but now revealed. And what had been hidden for ages was God's plan of salvation. The Old Testament saints got previews, but they never got the full feature film. And this word mystery appears in Daniel chapter 2 when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is troubled by a dream. Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest king of the greatest empire known to man. But despite all of his might and resources and wealth, the meaning of his dream was hidden to him. None of his wise men could tell him the dream or its meaning. So in a fit of rage, Nebuchadnezzar decides he wants to execute all of his wise men, including Daniel and his three friends. And Daniel, when he hears this news, he prays to God for mercy, and God reveals the dream and its meaning. Daniel chapter 2, verse 30. This is Daniel speaking. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Notice that God does the revealing. It's not something philosophers, politicians, or wise men of our age can pry out of God's hands. And you may remember the dream. The king sees this great statue, a head of gold, body of silver, then bronze, then iron, then feet of clay. And all these different parts of this statue remember, uh, represent different kingdoms of man that are doomed to pass away. 
And then God cuts a stone which strikes the feet of the statue, breaks it into a million pieces, and then this stone becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. And Daniel explains to the king that one day God will smash and destroy and bring to nothing all the kingdoms of the earth and establish his everlasting kingdom. And this happens, as we know, through the preaching of the gospel, which has come to you and in the whole world and is bearing fruit and increasing, Colossians 1.6. It happens, this building and growth of God's kingdom, as stewards speak and suffer to show the glorious riches of Christ. But there are a couple surprising twists. The first twist, as we see, is that this kingdom would include Gentiles. It would include Gentiles. The Israelites, they prided themselves in being God's chosen people. If a Gentile would be saved, they had to become a Jew first. And remember, when Jesus spoke about God's care and healing of Gentiles in Luke 4, the Israelites in the synagogue were so angry, they tried to throw Jesus off a cliff. The Israelites looked down on Gentile sinners and prided themselves for being offspring of Abraham. But they forgot that God chose Abraham to be a blessing to just the Jews, to all the nations, all the peoples of the earth. Israel liked the blessing part, but they forgot it would include all the peoples of the earth, even Gentiles. And God has prepared for himself a people, as we know in Revelation, from every tribe, language, and nation, from every continent and ethnicity. And God has ordained that the glorious vision of heaven will be realized in Revelation, and it will only come about through stewards like you and me who are willing to suffer and speak to show the glorious riches of Christ. The second twist is that God himself would come and dwell among us. The glorious, the riches of the glory of this mystery is Christ in you. Christ in you. Christ, the supreme creator, sustainer, redeemer, reconciler, would not just go back up to his heavenly home, but he would come and dwell in us and among us and with us. Jesus said in Revelation 3, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Christ is in us and we are in Christ. And you may know typically Paul uses in Christ to refer to our union with Christ, that we are one with him. But here, Paul uses Christ in you, Christ in you, that Christ somehow, we're reminded once again that Christ has taken the initiative, that Christ has made his dwelling in us. And these truths are worth living and dying and suffering for. Silva, that New York Times photographer, he risked his life to photograph a war zone, and he'd do it again. He was that committed to his profession and photographic journalism. And his disciples, as blood-bought saints of the Most High God, as people who belong to Jesus, who have been bought by him, shouldn't we be willing to suffer and lay down our lives for the gospel, for Christ, for our Savior. Stewards suffer and speak to show the glorious riches of Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.